Man, I'm excited to be here. Are you guys excited to be here? You know, I feel like, have you, have you ever gone, um, if you've ever worked out before in, in a gym or you've done like, like in CrossFit Insanity or, or whatever it is, uh, you know when you're, when you're done uh, just, just working really, really hard in the yard or in the gym or someone, you come in and, and uh, it's evening time and you either run that nice hot bath or you fill the bath with ice. I, I don't know what, which one is your thing, but, um, and, and, you, and you immerse yourself uh, into the water or you have a hot tub maybe that you turn on. You know, in the evening, sun is set and you turn the hot tub on and you, you, just, you just immerse yourself in and the jets are blowing and everything. You just kind of just go, oh, yes, that is just so right, isn't it? That's what I feel like church is, honestly. It's like we've been in, the, we've been in, the, in the, this life all week long. Uh, stuff's been thrown at us a thousand miles an hour. We know the gospel. We know our hope. We know Christ. But then we come here, and you just like you sink into hope, you know? You just immerse yourself in grace. And you're just like, yes, thank you. I mean, I'm standing there singing that song, and I'm like, thank you. That's it. That's, I just need to just wallow in it, you know, but wallow good, not wallow bad. <laughs> Have you ever been so excited about something, so excited about a story, so excited about a reality that, that as you're telling someone about it, you kind of get ahead of yourself. Have you ever done that? Well, you, you have to explain uh, more stuff. You have to give more context, but you can't because you got to get to the point. And, and then you tell the point, but the point, we're not ready for it yet because there's still context that we need to engage in. But you go there and then you go like this. You do something like this. Like, I, I, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's back up. Because so, you see the, the eyes like, uh, where are we going? Oh, let's back up and then I'll tell you. In many ways, what we're about to encounter in this beautiful piece of scripture we're about to enter into is a moment where I feel like Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, kind of gets ahead of himself a bit, right? So excited, he gets ahead of himself. Now, I'm not sure if it's Paul or the Holy Spirit, but either way, it's pretty cool, right? Where God's like, I'm just going to tell you this, but wait, there's more before we get to that. And it is so fun. So in order to understand why uh, we are so excited about what's about to emerge and why I think the Spirit of God is so excited that he just kind of blurts it out and he's like, well, more, more to tell. Uh, we have to understand where we're at in the story because context gives us everything we need to understand the specifics of where we land. So where are we, right? We've been traveling with Paul uh, who has uh, through an encounter with Jesus and then time with him uh, has been traveling the known world, carrying the reality of the gospel to both the Gentile people and the Jewish people and has this unique, beautiful background that God was sovereignly unfolding long before Paul knew Jesus where his studies led him to being taught in the greatest arenas of Greek um, study as well as the greatest arenas of Jewish study. And so he comes with this incredible clarity and understanding of the cultural nuances that he needs to understand to bring the gospel to both contexts. This is how God works. He prepares us in advance for the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. How awesome is that? I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyways, so here's the deal, right? 
So we're traveling with Paul. He's now uh, on, on a, a, a new missionary journey. Uh, he's preparing to move his uh, headquarters from Antioch to Rome. And he's writing this letter, the book of Romans that we know of, to the, the city of Rome, to the church in Rome to say, guys, I want to clarify for you the beauty and the complexity of the gospel so that when I get there, we don't spend a year and a half going through this stuff like I did in Corinth. Okay, so, so that's, that's what he's doing. And he's writing into a context that is a beautiful mixture of Jewish people and Gentile people. And if you've been around, you know the complexities of that uh, because of the context that we're in with all of that. Now, as Paul writes this letter, essentially the book of Romans, the reason I have waited a decade to get to this book and I've been excited ever since I started in Genesis is because in many ways, the book of Romans is the entire biblical narrative in one book, right? It's, it's the summary of the whole thing in this beautiful book, so rich. And so here's what Paul has so far clarified for us in this book. In chapter one, humanity is a mess, Okay, we gotta check that box, right? But specifically using the context of the Gentile world because without the law of God, the Gentile world expressed that mess the best, right? It was like, oh, you don't have God directing your steps and you just, you human, go be human. This is how that plays out. And so there was a, look what humanity does by itself, which was God's intent when he pulled the Jewish people out from the rest of the nations, not to separate them and make them better, but to show the distinct difference between life with God and life without God. And so Paul uses that, and chapter one goes, boy, it's a mess, isn't it? And all the Jewish people say, amen, woo, those people are crazy. Chapter two, how did you do with the law of God, having it in your hand, having God's presence, having God's direction, how'd it go for you? And what we found is that it was just as messy, but just better hidden. The expressions looked a little more legalistically pure, but the intentions were a giant mess. And so conclusion, the problem is not our expressions, our behaviors. The problem is the internal realities of our humanity. And why is that a problem? Because when we found ourselves in the Garden of Eden, abandoning God's story for us and pursuing our own divinity, our own story, our own direction, we encountered what God told us we would, which was death and sin, and those two things have enslaved our hearts and minds, and we functionally are against God even when we pretend to be for him. That was the conclusion in chapter two. So everybody in the human race is in trouble. And then here's what Paul does. He says, now, the problem with this whole issue of the sin nature that has enslaved us isn't so much that we behave badly, okay? That's not actually our big problem. Our big problem is that the God who made us, the God who made everything, is absolute justice, absolute righteousness, absolute holiness. So he is going to behave justly and righteously toward sin. You haven't caught that quite yet, have you? What happens when a just and righteous being, the creator and sustainer of all things, behaves rightly towards sin? Sin dies. Sin is abolished. Sin is overcome. Sin is made to experience its true and real consequence, which is death. So here's, here's what we conclude. Our problem is the wrath of God. Not that God is wrathful, 
Because this is how we conclude, right? People say, how can a merciful God uh, be so wrathful? I'm like, no, no, God is not wrathful. God's wrath towards sin is righteous because a just and righteous God could only behave towards sin that way. Otherwise, he would not be what? Just and righteous, in which case it wouldn't matter if he's merciful because he would not be just and righteous. And who would want to have a merciful, unjust, unrighteous being? Because with unjust and unrighteous will come all the other junk that we all know. He would be like the Greek gods, getting mad one day, throwing stuff at each other, murdering each other, cutting each other's heads off. I mean, have you read Greek mythology? It's insane. That's what God would look like if he wasn't just and righteous. So thank goodness we stand in his wrath because that's what makes him him. Trouble is, we die there. So this is where we landed in chapter three. Uh, and then he did it, didn't he? Remember? He sat and said, oh, but God is merciful and he is gracious. So how has he collided those two worlds? Well, he has given us a great hope despite where we stand that will set us free both from the wrath of God and from the enslavement of sin and death. Can you imagine that? That we would be undone from being enslaved to sin and death and also protected from the wrath of God simultaneously in one gracious and merciful act. And then Paul in chapter three goes, what is this act? And then he brings onto the table the great redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And he goes, it is in Christ and Christ alone that we see the great hope that we need. And he brings Christ to the table and he starts talking about what Christ has done and how that's played out. And then as he begins to do that in chapter three, he stops and he goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. You're, you're thinking, how on earth is Jesus enough? And then he goes into chapter four and he starts unpacking how faith works, remember? He goes, you see, you've thought the whole time it's by works, that you gotta do all of this, but it's actually not, it is by faith. And then he goes back to Abraham and he says, look, it's always been this way. And then as he talks about Abraham, he says, we have the same faith as Abraham had. And, and, and Abraham's faith was what? Unwavering. Remember how we went through that? We're like, well, hold on. His life was a disaster zone like ours. And then we discovered that this faith that Paul is showing us we have is twofold an expression of the faith, but also an internal reality of faith that is not ours that we don't come up with because in our inability to be for God, be with God, follow God, we cannot believe in God. And so the faith that we have received is also a gift from God, part of his grace and mercy. And so we discovered there is an unwavering faith in us that will prove itself authentic to us instead of us proving it authentic to God. Because if we are proving our faith authentic to God, then it is just another form of works. But when God says, no, I'm proving your faith authentic to you because it is actually a gift from me because I am the author and finisher of it. And we landed there and we're like, what does that mean? And then chapter five, here's what Paul did. That was last week if you were here. And Dave did an amazing job of unpacking this reality. Therefore, if this faith is ours, and by faith we now stand with God before him, saved from our enslavement to sin and 
potentially saved from the wrath of God. Therefore, now what does this mean? And then in the scriptures, remember, in chapter, one, uh, chapter five, verse one, he started out, we have been made right by Christ, justified, and in our, in our justification, made innocent, made right by him, by his work, not by ourselves, we are given access once again to God. That is a reconciliation, a relational dynamic that takes place when something was broken and it is now made right again. We can walk in to the presence of God without fear of what? God's justice, God's righteousness, because before God's justice and righteousness were our demise, right? And now they are not. So we're like, whoa, we're justified, given access to And what are we given access to? It says it, to the grace that is God's and in this access to his grace by justification. It says in chapter five, this is our great hope. This is our great hope. This is our great hope. Now watch, listen to this. The reason we struggle with that last little part, this is our great hope, is because we have wrongly defined the word hope. See, when you think of hope, you immediately think of something that is a maybe, don't you? I hope my team wins. They might, they might not. My boys argued yesterday about which team was gonna win today in soccer, and one of my boys was like, they are going to win. And the other boy said, you don't know that. And he said, yes, I do. I know what team they're playing. And my son said to me, dad! I'm like, what? Can you tell him? Even if the worst team plays the best team, sometimes the worst team wins. And I'm like, yeah, he's right. Now, the best team will probably win, but they might not. See, that's hope. You have hope, but it's not, it's not guaranteed, right? Here's why. Definition of hope. Dictionary. Ready? The feeling oh, that what is wanted, my team to win, can be had, or that events will turn out for the best. And I just feel completely fragile. <laughs> The feeling that everything's gonna be okay. I'm sorry to tell you that your feeling isn't gonna dictate anything on planet Earth, right? That's the hope that we constantly define in our minds when we say the word hope. But in that same dictionary, right underneath that first definition, which is the primary human definition, there are some other dictionary definitions, not biblical. I'm not going, well, that's, that's the dictionary, now the Bible. I'm going, no, no, dictionary, dictionary definition. Here it is, okay? Grounds for this feeling in a particular reality. Do you just catch that? The word hope can also be defined not as the feeling, but as the grounds. You with me? The reality that makes our hope our hope can also be defined as hope. My hope is Christ, for example. What I mean is, there is grounds for the feeling. It's not just a feeling, there's some reality behind this. That's also in the dictionary. How about this one, I love this one. To look forward with both desire, the feeling, and I love this, dictionary definition, reasonable confidence. Now, the reasonable, again, you go back, I'm not gonna do it, it'll take us 10 minutes to go to reasonable and then define reasonable because reasonable doesn't, again, mean a feeling of like, I think it's kind of reasonable. The word reasonable actually means is I have reason for, right? That's its real definition. I have a reason for a feeling that is real. And so when we say 
that because of what Christ has done and because of its impact and because of its effect, that it has justified us, given us access, and set us in relationship in the grace of God that we might have hope. This is the hope we are talking about. A hope that says grounds for this feeling in a particular reality. That's what Paul is trying to do in chapter five. We have every reason to hope. That's pretty awesome, right? But listen, that was last week. We haven't even touched on this week. You thought that was this week. You're like all excited. That's not the most exciting stuff. That's kind of like the boring part of this chapter. You ready for the exciting part of this chapter? Are you ready? Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter five and let's see where he goes next because now, now we get into what Paul is doing in this chapter to set us up to realize all that we step into is actually founded in a great hope. That's why last week, where did we end? We ended with suffering, didn't we? And we said, boy, suffering is real on this planet, isn't it? But we can encounter suffering very differently now because the reason suffering is so devastating is not exclusively or primarily because of its experience. It is actually because of what it tells us about our future. It is a hopeless reality, isn't it? Suffering says something is wrong and I'm not gonna end well. But we have this great hope that says now in suffering, you can encounter suffering, experiencing its weight, but not crumbling under it. Why? Because your hope that is grounds for the feeling of a future reality that is going to be real, your hope transcends you over the suffering experience and says, while I'm experiencing this, I can still know that it is producing things bigger than I can imagine. And that's where he ended last week, didn't he? Our suffering is now measured by our hope. Now watch what he does. Watch what he does. Verse 6, chapter 5, page 1043, if you're using our Bibles. For. Okay, that's a beautiful word, isn't it? It's a beautiful word. For. See what Paul's doing here is he's saying, listen. Here's the hope we have, the justification, the access, the grace of God, the mercy of God, all of that. And now he's going, because. Essentially, that's the word, because. So sometimes there's the word, therefore. Because of this, this is true. But sometimes he does it backwards. This is true. This is true, therefore. Now he does this. All of this is happening because of something. Watch this. Because of. For. While. We were still weak. Now the word weak, again, biblical definition of the word weak in this context is tied back to everything in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? Because remember, what he was describing in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is this life that we're living where we are called to live up to the righteousness of God but cannot is because we are weakened by the sinful nature. So when he says... While we were still weak, he's using that word to kind of umbrella all the realities of our enslavement to sin. Are you with me? While we were still enslaved to sin, while we were still bound to unrighteousness, while we were still weak in our ability to live up to anything God, and in our weakness failed, and in our failure expressed who we are, and in who we are stood before the wrath of God, recipients of his wrath. That's, that's the word weak, okay? The word weak has sentences and sentences and sentences of implications. And I just quickly touched on them. There's much more I could go on for an hour. The word weak. 
while we were still weak. But remember, four. Four while we were still weak. Why is all this true? Because while we were still bound, watch now, watch now, at the right time, at the right time, I love that, just a quick side note here, right? Isn't it beautiful how constantly God is saying, I, I'm not too early, I'm not too late, I didn't wait too long, I wasn't waiting for you, I wasn't waiting on you. So much theology today is built on God responding to us, meaning that God sits waiting, and if we just pull it all together in some way as the Christian church, then God will lay out his, so then it's not at the right time, it's when the time comes, right? If the time comes. But God always goes, no, 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 no. While you were in your insanity, at just the right time, at just the right time, in all of history, from the beginning to the end, at just the right time, what happened? At just the right time, look what he says. Christ died for who? The ungodly. See, these words have become soft to us, haven't they? Christ died for the ungodly. But it's not how it needs to come across. You need to encounter that word in all of its fullness because otherwise you don't get what's happening here. It needs to say, for while we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. The ungodly. We should stand for a second and go, huh, that sounds off, doesn't it? That sounds off. Because the ungodly are those opposite to God, opposed to God, so they are God's enemies. Okay, now look, Paul gets this. The Spirit of God gets this, and so he actually quickly tells us, look what he says, for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So here's what he says. It's almost like Paul saying, stop everybody, I want you to pause on the word ungodly, okay? I want you to catch this. I don't want you to pass by this because this is critical to understanding what's about to come next, which is where Paul gets ahead of himself, okay? So watch this, he goes, when Christ died, at just the right time, he died for us while we were his enemies. And then he goes like this, that's a big deal. Why? Because when somebody dies for somebody else in our human context, it is not in general for our enemies. Sometimes people die for other people, but it's for the good people, for the, for the fellow soldier, for the son or daughter, for the mother or father, for the best friend but not for the jerk, not for the enemy. And so he goes, you, you have to understand when we say ungodly, that's a big deal, that's a big deal. Now watch, now watch. Look what he says. But God, verse eight, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul will write later on in Ephesians, uh, a letter that he will write to the church in Ephesus, and in Ephesians chapter two, he, he does this beautiful thing where he takes this sentence and he expands on it so that we can catch what that means. And he says in Ephesians chapter two, listen, 
while we were still dead in our transgressions. In other words, we were dead because of sin. We were in sin, enslaved to sin. And then he unpacks what that means in Ephesians chapter two. He goes, we were chasing after the passions of our flesh. We were, we were following the prince of the air, the enemy of God, literally following his ways, following him. We desired everything opposite to God. If externally we were pretending to be good because it was beneficial to us, because in society, oftentimes it is very beneficial to behave well, is it not? And so often our behavior looks great on the outside because it is beneficial to who? Yours truly, right? But he goes, even then, there was the things going on internally that were against God. And then he says, while we were still dead in our sin, because God loved us, but God's great love for us. And then he talks about the fact that Christ dies in beautiful detail. See, the theme here is constantly... While we were against God, he gave himself to set us right internally and to set us right with each other and to set us right with him. The work of justification was for the fruit of reconciliation. And that's what he has done. And he did it while we were against him. Now, now hold these thoughts because they're all about to come together in the mind-blowing, get-ahead-of-yourself moment. Are you ready? We're not at the good stuff yet. This is just all getting you ready, okay? Getting me ready. Watch this now. Watch this. So, since therefore. Oh, that's a double therefore. Did you catch that? That's like Paul going, okay, therefore, therefore. Therefore, therefore. So he's like, please don't miss this. Because of all of this, since therefore these things have happened. Let's take a look now. Since Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. So there is the legal work that took place that set us right with God because we were made right when we were wrong. So this is now talking about not the reconciling reality of this equation, but just the legal reality. You were the recipient of righteous justice, which was going to be wrath and death, and you have now been justified by the sacrifice of Christ. So you see, this is all legal terminology. This is not Jesus his heart is with you and your heart is with him. This is his blood. So the sacrifice sufficed for your need and has undone your slavery. It's just a setting free reality. You don't even need to like, Jesus chats with you and you chat with Jesus. It's just, this is what happened, okay? Since therefore, we have been made right by his sacrifice. What, 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 what? Take a look, take a look. We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from, wait now, the wrath of God. See, our fear should always have been the wrath of God. Our concern should always have been the wrath of God. The righteous, just action of God towards sin. And here's what he's saying. Since you have been undone from sin, you now stand outside of the path of the righteous justice of God. So the wrath of God 
is no longer something you will be the recipient of. And so the word here, the key word here is wait for it now, saved. See, this is why we say in the church, I have been saved by the blood of Jesus. Saved from what? My horrible behaviors and the consequences of them? No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's child's play. I have been saved from the wrath of God, his just, righteous action towards sin by being made right through the sacrifice of Christ so that I would not be the recipient of death. And in so happening, I have been saved. You see all that? It's not the good part yet. Just setting it all up, okay? I mean, it's good stuff, but it's not the good part yet. Okay, now watch. Oh, he's gonna get somewhere. He's gonna get somewhere. This way he gets ahead of himself. Watch. Now, we get ahead of ourselves. Here we go. Ready? Now Paul gets all excited. And he's like, okay, I don't think you're getting it. See, this is where the communicator goes, I'm reading your faces and you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. But you're not like, ah, 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 because you're not getting it. Okay, you're not getting it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you get it now. This is what Paul's doing. Watch this. Okay, okay. Let me try to put this into a picture for you, Paul says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Okay, now I just wanna tell you, I just read a sentence that when we're done here today, I hope this sentence is memorized and becomes the dearest sentence to your heart until you leave this planet of death. Do you know why? Watch, let me tell you why, watch. Okay, there's a movie that came out recently called Hacksaw Ridge, okay? Don't watch it if violence is difficult for you because it's very violent. But it is a true story of a man that did truly heroic things. That is the story of a soldier during a terrible war that was on a ridge against the Japanese during the time when we were fighting each other instead of being friends, right? And on that hill, things happened that were so difficult for our military that they kept being pushed back off the cliff again, off the hill. And on a particular night, when everybody left the hill, this man stayed on the hill. Now what makes the story extraordinary is he is the only soldier in the history of our military to receive the highest level of bravery without holding a weapon because he believed that he did not want to take a weapon into war. Can you imagine that? I'm not taking a weapon into war because I don't want to kill the enemy. I want to save the people being killed by the enemy. You with me so far? So his philosophy was because he encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is in the movie and in his story, I don't want to spend my time fighting against the enemy. I got lots of brothers that'll be doing that real well and I'm not against that. I'm just, I don't want to be the one doing that. What I want to be the one doing is running around saving my brothers while they're being shot and hurt. So that makes sense. That's pretty heroic, right? In of itself, that's awesome. The night that he stays on the ridge, there's this giant cliff, and he goes and collects through the war zone all of these wounded brothers that had been left up there to die, and he lowers them down a cliff by a rope all by himself all night long. And so at a certain point, when they figure out he's not around at the military base, these two guys come who were standing guard at the bottom of the cliff so that the Japanese won't come down the cliff and kill them. They come to the base and with all these bodies, wounded soldiers, and they're like, where are these people coming from? And they literally go, I don't know. They just keep coming down the, the cliff. Somebody's up there. Uh, and, and he's exhausted. 
this, this soldier. And, and the beauty of this movie is he lays uh, at the edge of the cliff, hands burned to a frizzle uh, doing the rope thing, and he says to God, give me strength to get just one more. Give me strength to get just one more. And then he goes and does it all night long. Now why am I telling you this story? Because you know what part of the cool part of the story is? When the two guys come to the base with all the wounded, here's what they say. He's lowering our men down all the time. I don't know who is, and then they go, and he's even lowering down Japanese people. So if he finds a wounded person, this person looks Japanese. Next, American. Right? So that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Friend or enemy lowers down. Now, now wait, I'm not done yet. See, we make movies out of these things because they are so outside of our box, aren't they? But can you imagine this now? Wait for it now. Imagine this now. It's one thing at night to run around, find wounded people. They're not shooting at you. They're not killing you. They're not screaming obscenities at you. They are groaning. Now, they were your enemy about four hours ago, but now what are they? A wounded human. That's one thing to lift someone like that up and lower them down. But can you imagine this? You're in the foxhole. It's not nighttime. You're not running around helping wounded people. There's the enemy. And they're shouting at you. And they're tossing grenades at you. And they're shooting at you. And every time one of your guys shoots one of them, you jump up and run into the battlefield. And you grab the guy that's wounded. And you're like, I got you. And you lay him down. Now, when a guy runs into battle to rescue a brother, that's amazing. You get crosses for that because no one has that expectation. Look, if they're actually shooting, and you're going to die if you go, don't, don't. But then some of the soldiers are like, I'm doing it. But can you imagine if a guy started doing that every time one of the enemy got shot? I got him! I got him! I mean, we would literally go, are you out of your mind? In fact, we would be mad, wouldn't we? Would we not be mad? Stop it. We are fighting for our lives to kill the bad people. Stop saving them. So, no one in their right mind lays their life down or risks their life in the middle of the fight for the enemy. You with me? Change story real quick. Change story real quick, okay? You are in the battle, and you're a dad. You're a dad. You're a mom. You're a parent, right? And next to you in the battle happens to be your son or your daughter, your offspring, and you have raised them from the time they were born, and you have loved them, and they love you, and you have a great relationship with them, and they're 18 and a half a little too young for the real world of war. But they're at war with you because it's a big war and they need to be there. And you are their commanding officer and they happen to be in your platoon. And they're in your platoon because you made what? Sure of it, didn't you? Why did you make sure of it? Because by all power that you have, you're going to make sure they stay where? By your side so that if they're stupid enough to be heroic, you'll stop them, Right? Because you're like, look, heroism is for other people. You stay by me. Why are you doing all of that? Because you want them to leave the war alive. Now, wait for it. That son or daughter, and one of the buddies gets hit. 
and before you're able to reach out, they jump up and they run into battle, okay? But before they get to their body, it happens, the nightmare. They get hit and they go down, bam. What do you do, parent? See, is, is anyone confused about what happens next? Is anyone thinking, well, you start considering how many bullets, of, and you, can you calculate, and you're like, do I really want to die for my son? I, I don't know. See, none of us are confused about what happens next, are we? You jump up, you run, and you save their buddy. No, you, you don't. You save them, right? You're like, no, I don't. I'll be right back for you, son. But the guy you were trying to save, I'm going to get him. No, all of us innately, immediately go, of course you save your son. Of course you save your son. Now, here's what Paul just told us. If, while I, was against God, firing at him, hating him, throwing obscenities from my soul at him, against him in every way. He not only risked his life, but lost his life to save me while I hated him. Now wait for it. How much more would it not make reasonable sense that now that I am called his son or his daughter, that he would not live the rest of his life disappointed in me because I am failing him and wondering whether he should still save me. Let's see how your life plays out. Let's see how it goes. I mean, I saved you from sin and death while you hated me, but now that you're my kid, I'm not so sure I want you in the kingdom. So if you behave rightly and you get things right enough, then I will be delighted in you. But if you don't, then I'm just gonna be a disappointed parent every day and I'll begrudgingly allow you into the kingdom if your theology happens to be once saved, always saved, but I might not even if your theology happens to be once saved, maybe not. <laughs> Which by the way, ours is once saved, always saved because that's what's biblical. Um, so reality is this. See what he's saying here? Is it not an insanity to believe that if God would give himself for us while we hated him, is it not an insanity to believe that now that we belong to him, he would leave us for one split second? That he would not delight in us every single day despite our struggle and difficulty? That he would not be so excited about us seeing him intangible reality for the first time though he has seen us before the foundations of time began. Would he not delight in us? And this is biblical folks because the entire scriptural narrative says that once you belong to God, he delights in you every day. He sings over you. And why, why tell us all of this? Why, why? Because we struggle in flesh on a planet of death and we have shame. And shame says, not I did a bad thing, that's guilt. Shame says, I am a bad person because of what I did. And God says, you are a good person because of what I did for you. So you can't be a bad person anymore because I have finished the work. You can still do bad things, but you cannot be a bad person because once you were a slave to sin, but now you have been justified and made right. So 
What is our hope? You ready? What is our reasonable confidence that we are going to experience the fullness of a finished work of God in us that will allow us the fullness of all future expression of redemption while experiencing much of that on this planet as we are sanctified or made like Jesus through the process of suffering and struggle? What is our great hope? Our great hope is this, that Christ, in dying for us while we're his enemies, reconciling us to God, now loves us like a father to a son or a mother to a daughter in such a way that he will never allow us to be the recipients of the wrath of God because he will stand between the wrath of himself and us at all costs because he already did while we hated him. Are we not secure in Christ? And so now we get to say, ready? The last definition in the dictionary. Here it is. Dictionary definition. No joke, right? Hope. A person or thing in which expectations are centered. A person in which expectations are centered. And here's what Paul just said. If you are not going to center your hope on Jesus, you're an idiot. Because this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. And I'm not talking about those that don't know Jesus yet. I'm talking about those of us that know Jesus when I say that. If we know Jesus, we've been justified, and we don't center our hope on him, then we're stupid because we're not thinking straight, because we are not reasonable, because we don't know that if he saved us while we hated him, how much more does he not love us and save us now that he has reconciled us as sons and daughters to him? And then Paul says this. This is how I know he got ahead of himself. Watch, watch, watch. Verse, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So you see what he just did? He moved backwards. Did you notice that? He's talking about since we received reconciliation, our great hope is now in being saved because we belong. And then he steps backwards in verse 11. And he goes, now before we get to all of that, which is awesome, we gotta, we, gotta, we gotta focus on the fact that we've been reconciled. Because just that fact that we've been reconciled is so full of hope, so full of wonder, that if even the reconciliation didn't affect this wondrous other hope, this would be enough. Do you see what he's doing? So he's going, this is the big one, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about reconciliation. You know why he just did that? Because now in the next verse, he's gonna go into how our reconciliation worked so that our hope is not just founded on an idea, but on the evidence behind that idea. But that's for next week, so let's pray. God, you are incredible and amazing and wondrous as we step into the next passage in the weeks to come where we begin to dig into what this reconciliation is, how it worked, why it was needed, how it all functions, and why our hope is so secure in you reconciling us to yourself through your work of redemption. We also stand the whole time in all of that realizing that it is not just the reconciliation that is awesome in our great hope, but the fact that now that we are reconciled, how much more do you not delight in us every day as your sons and daughters, because while we hated you, you loved us. How can we think for a second, now that we love you, that you would have anything but wonder for us? Remind us, God, that as we enter into the domain of planet death, and we live in a body of flesh that tempts and, and, and messes with our soul, that when we find ourselves wavering in our expression of faith, 
that you are not wavering in your grace, mercy, and love toward us, in your delight for us, in your plan for us, in your promise to us that you will finish the great work you began in us. May our confidence be in this, that you, Jesus, have done it all, are doing it all, and will do it all for us. And we are secure in you in the midst of great joy and great suffering, great success and great failure, that we could not undo you when we hated you, so how can we undo you when you have reconciled us to you. May we walk in delight in the days and weeks to come, not because our circumstances give us reason to delight, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but because you are our hope and all our expectations are centered on you. We love you, Jesus, you're incredible. Amen.